So welcome to this episode of On The Move, a podcast about missions, international ministry, and how God is transforming lives around the world. I'm your host, Leanne White, and this week I'm honored to be joined by Glenn and Linnea Bays. Welcome, Glenn and Lynn. Hi, welcome. Thank, Thank you. you. So Glenn and Lynn, as I've gotten to know you, I've learned that you served as missionaries in Cote d'Ivoire with World Venture for over 40 years. With such a long and varied time as missionaries, there are so many things that we could talk about today. But I want to start with how you both felt called to serve God on the mission field. Well, for me, it was a process. Um, I grew up in a very missions-minded church in Saginaw, Michigan, Emmanuel Baptist Church, now Emmanuel Bible Church. And uh, there are many missionaries, missionary conferences. Uh, I grew up hearing many stories, many wonderful things. And frankly, it was pretty intimidating. I thought, you know, really, these are wonderful people. I mean, Dr. Hell White was one of them, you know, <laughs> who came and the stories he would tell and all that kind of stuff was just Wow, that's, you know, they're, they're super spiritual people. I could never attain that. I grew up in a, in a Christian home in a good, good Bible believing church, good missions minded church, but missions was never an option to me when I was growing up. I just, I don't think I could ever be that good. Anyway, I just couldn't attain that, that level of spirituality from my perception as a kid. God got a hold of me in college, in university, uh, went through university Christian fellowship, and that turned my whole world around as far as looking at the Lordship of Christ and university also emphasized the missions. So missions kind of became a little bit of an option. And then I met uh, Linnea at an university retreat and kind of was a God thing. I'm a pretty much an introvert and very shy person. And I saw her and went, whoa, and <laughs> introduced myself to her and then, then vigorously pursued her for three years um, before we got married. And the, the the best best thing one of the good things about that is I met her family. They right. were missionaries. Missionaries, missionary doctor, <laughs> you know, Doctor Dwight Slater, you know, tall guy, very imposing, and from what you know when I first met him and all that kind of stuff. But then realized that they're very nat very normal people, uh, just being obedient to God. So that was my introduction, and then God th through that process of God opening those that interest in me. Then Lynn and I both attended. Uh, in Urbana in 1970. And uh, when Paul Little was speaking at the very end of the conference about uh, affirming the will of God for your life, and then he, then there was an invitation given. And the very last one was uh, in those who felt that they were sensing a call to overseas mission, stand up. Well, I was dating Lynn by that time and, and knew her for about nine months. And I was sitting next to her and she was sitting next to me. And I was thinking, Boy, I don't know if she's going to stand up. I'm going to stand up. So I popped up and looked over, and she had popped up. So we kind of both popped up right together. <laughs> I should say that was a, obviously the point of when when I and Lynn both uh, expressed our desire to uh, be full-time missionaries. And so that was a whole process to that point. Then from then on, from there on, I uh, was going into – at that time, I was majoring in – wildlife management. There wasn't, back in those days, there was nothing you could do in wildlife management other than maybe working at an MK school and managing the wildlife and the kids. <laughs> but uh, so anyway, I changed my major into medical technology and uh, was speaking with, asked Lynn's dad if uh, there was a, you know, a need for med techs overseas. Oh yeah, there is. 
And it turned out later, as we went through the application process with World Venture at that time, uh, Conservative Baptist Foreign Mission Society, that he had put in a request for MedTech, you know, like 10, 15 years before. And uh, so she never told us. She never told us. So God, (laughs) you know, directed us right back, you know, to well, where Lynn grew up and to the hospital there. So that was kind of my the process of God getting me there in a very short, brief time there. And mine started when I was a little kid. (laughs) I had uh, begun following the Lord very seriously. I don't even know when I truly came to know him, but it was a long process growing up there, seeing uh, what he was doing on the field. But there was a crucial moment when I was 13, middle of eighth grade. By then I was at the local boarding school that was about three hours drive south, five hours back then. And uh, we had come home for the Christmas holidays. And there was a young couple that had gone out there. They'd only been there three years, but they had arrived to follow up uh, people from the Niatafolo ethnic group that lived as subsistence farmers all around the hospital area. They were going to follow up patients that came to the hospital and try to lead them to the Lord or disciple. I just adored them. For one thing, all the other missionaries seemed really old. (laughs) They were my parents' (laughs) age. And uh, Uncle Jim, especially, we called him Uncle and Aunt back then. He took us to school a lot, did a lot of stuff with us, taught us how to make pizza, lots of things. Okay. On Christmas Day, my family had been at church for the morning service. We were home. We were doing our wrap-up of our Christmas gifts and things like that. And the police came to the door and said "We to my dad, we think we have one of your people that has been in an accident. Would you please come and confirm? And dad went out and found out that Jim had died on the road. He had taken the first five Nyatafolo believers back to their village after bringing them in for the Christmas festival. So they would know, even though it wasn't in their language, they would know they were not alone. They were, by then it was, you know, mostly immigrant believers that were in the town working at the hospital. (laughs) Anyway, on his way back in, the car rolled over three times. He was only like 35 and he died. We do not know why. So the missionaries gathered in the living room of my parents' house, and I was in the back listening, listening, and they were praying. And my dad's prayer was, Lord, we do not understand why you would take Jim right now. He's only started to reach the Nyatafolo. Please send someone else to continue this work. And I felt my heart turn over inside, but I pushed it away. I said, no, you're just a girl. So I didn't tell them, but as I was going on, through college, I realized that I was, I had felt a, a, a call to missions even in sixth grade, but I was pushing it away because I was, I knew that most missionaries are single women and I was <laughs> dating this guy and I didn't want to be a single woman. <laughs> so I was beginning to wonder, maybe you only want to be a missionary because your parents were. Then we went to Urbana and Paul Little's talk on affirming the will of God, the point that got me was we don't trust God to be good. We say he's good, but we are pretty sure he's out to trap us, to get us somewhere, like on the mousetrap game. And when you get to the end, you think you've won, then the trap comes down and he goes, nah, nah, I gotcha. And I was so convicted. I thought, yeah, I'm afraid that he's going to do something to me that would be horrible. And I, I was convicted, I repented, and I knew he wanted me to go on missions, but I didn't know what this guy was going to do. So when the two of us popped up, Next to each other, like popcorn. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> 
So we waited a while. We went through some different things. But after we had finished college, I had majored in journalism. I thought I'd be going to some big city to teach writers or something. But when we finished all our education and applied to the mission, we said, we'll go anywhere in the world where you need us. Well, one of our five hospitals needs a med tech, they said. It's the one back in Farkesi Dugu Cote d'Ivoire, where I grew up. And all of a sudden, this memory of my heart turning over when my dad prayed came just blasting in on me. And I said, Glenn, you got to hear this. And when I told him, immediately, we just had the very same vision. So we went back, knowing he'd be at the hospital. I didn't know how my journalism would come into play. Turns out that when you learn a new language that nobody else speaks, you do have to interview a lot of people. You have to do a lot of linguistic work and all of the things I'd learned as a journalism major and as a journalist little for a little while. It just, it's all come into play again. I had to go get training in linguistics and stuff, but the Lord knew what he was doing. This is the point I'm going to make. You know, his fingerprints are on it from the beginning all through each stage and to then send us there. And they were still a least reached people with nobody else working in their language to reach them. Mm -hmm. Wow. That's amazing. I, I love a story like that, that only God can write, right? Only only he can author a story like that. So Linnea, let's start with you and just talk a little bit because you've alluded already to how kind of your, your degree ended up, transferring itself into some of the things that you did on the field. So can you talk a little bit about what your ministry looked like in Cote d'Ivoire, the things that you did there? When we got there and we got permission from the mission to begin learning Yadafolo, it was really a very daunting challenge because we had to work monolingually without with someone who could not speak French, which we had learned. It's a national language or any other language with us, but it was fun. We both found that there was just so much to discover. And as it went on, we kept asking our language helper who came from a village out in the bush. We kept saying, can't we come out and be immersed? Can't we get with your family and with people? And finally he took us out there and we began staying in the village overnight, several days at a time, things like that. And the people were just so amazing to get to know. It, it, it Cultural learning was a little hard at some times. There were no amenities that we were used to out there, but we just kept pressing ahead. By the time we went on furlough, I knew that if we, if I was really going to understand the tone system in this and the gram- grammatical system, which was really weird to, to, in fact, I found out it's one they say probably won't happen in the world, but it did there. <laughs> I needed to study linguistics. So I, I took a master's that year and uh, went back. And then to our surprise, about the first year we were back into our first, our second term, Glenn was working out at the hospital. Our language helper plus two friends from the village, two, three young men said, would you please come and teach us about Jesus? We've been wanting to know. So we started meeting out there around a fire. Glenn teaching, we tried to take someone who could translate for him because our Nyatafolo was nowhere near enough to just teach in it. I was still able to keep studying it several hours a day with a language helper. He was working full-time at the hospital by this time, setting up a lab for them and everything. So as I was listening to these guys trying to translate what Glenn was saying, I realized they have no idea how to say the things he's saying in French in Yadafolo. It's never been done before. Even what Jesus on a cross, what's a cross? 
You know, everything was brand new. And that was when it dawned on me they were going to need a translation. And so long story short, we got permission to do that. And um, a young couple came and worked with us who were already with Wycliffe. I had met them at Michigan State while I was doing my master's in linguistics. And they were there for nine years. And because of that, we were associated with SIL, which is Wycliffe Bible Translators, when they're working overseas, which was a huge boon. And um, we started doing the Gospel of Mark, which is the easiest, most narrative gospel short. We did that in uh, 1998-99. And then that couple got voted into other positions, and there I was all alone. I felt really desperate for a while. I started studying Greek and Hebrew during the furlough, went back. I knew by then we needed to do Old Testament before we did any more New Testament, because You can't really explain the gospel without that story of creation and the fall and how God worked through the covenants to bring people to himself. So I said, who am I going to work with? And I went to a young woman who had gone with me as my language helper to several of the Wycliffe events. She said, no, I've already got an idea. I want to work at the hospital as a nurse aide. I can't do that. Who am I going to ask? I went to a guy out in the public health group at the hospital who was translating for them into Nyatafolo, and he was a Christian. I said, Moise, would you be interested in translation? He said, I've always wanted to, and I thought I couldn't. I've never been to school. Could I do it? I said, yes, you could do it. He said, I'll quit. I'll be there tomorrow. I said, no, you have to give two weeks notice. (laughs) He's the one I'm still working with in retirement, which is a long story. But we did, eventually we did the whole Pentateuch and Psalms, and we were able to send another young man that I met whose story is, I could tell you stories all day, but we won't. (laughs) We sent him off for training, and he eventually even got a master's in the translation linguistics program that was down at the seminary in the big city, Abidjan, and uh, came back. And he did most of the New Testament, and then Moise and I helped finish it up with the general epistles. But in 1921, We went back with this printed copy of the New Testament, Genesis through Deuteronomy and the Psalms to give them. And it has made such a huge difference. That's so exciting. So that was 2021, right? You went back to do that? 2021. (laughs) It takes a long time. And which, you know, we went through a war. We were evacuated for three years. A lot of things in that story as it went along, which delayed everything. The North was under rebel control for 10 years, but we were able to go back once our youngest son was no longer a minor and we could have him in college here. So we went back and were under rebel control for a while, but it meant that everything slowed down. You didn't have the the kinds of access to um, electricity, (laughs) water, and things like that because the government kept shutting it up. So... There were lots of risks along the way and lots of mountains to climb over. But in the end, the people have this much of the Bible. And we're now working, I'm working long distance to help finish it up. The team can hardly wait to do that. But they're also working on literacy because most Nyatafolos have not been to school and can't read. Or if they've been to school just through a few years of grade school, it was all in French, which they had never spoken at home. So it it takes a while. (laughs) (laughs) but they're becoming more and more eager to learn to read so that they can have their own access. Yeah. 
that's something that I've, that we have found. Um, and I think many Americans don't understand that to be the, the case about literacy rates, right? In other countries mm-hmm. that what some folks don't understand, I certainly didn't really understand it before I was introduced to these concepts is that if you're from a tribe with a tribal language as your mother tongue, your heart language, what you just described, right? That you don't have education. It might not even be a written down language that you That's could right. be educated to read it. And, and so you're, you don't get to read the Bible in the language that means the most to you if someone doesn't translate it into that language. But then you also have to learn how to read that language if it's not been yeah. a language that is a language used for literacy in in your country. And so we are finding that in many, many areas where we're doing ministry. And it's, for me, it's a surprising thing. Mm. Um, It was surprising. And I think for many Americans, that's a surprising feature of some of the challenges and then opportunities for missionaries like yourselves to go and provide something like what you did. So for the Nalafolo people that that have now have the Bible in their language, where where are they at right now with literacy, with linguistics? Is that something that you guys are aware of? Yeah, literacy generally, for adult literacy, it all centers around motivation. Mm-hmm. And uh, for, especially if you're looking for adults who who are already engaged in work. I mean, if they, if they don't see any profit, any, any, any reason to had to do it, then there's really very little motivation for them. So often we find is that, um, in our area, the literacy revolves around wanting to read the scripture. And, uh, for those who are believers, literacy will really take off when the general population sees the value of reading and writing. And a lot of the literacy efforts is also trying to produce more literature. Scripture is the hardest kind of literature to understand because it's translated and it's a foreign culture, foreign everything, you know, foreign everything else. So we also have done quite a bit of work in, in producing literature, uh, their own uh, fables, uh, proverbs, stories that they're all familiar with to put that all into uh, written form because that's easier to read. And then, you know, primers and trying to get help adults to learn to read. Uh, also trying to get help children to learn to read too. If a child learns, uh, even you know, before they go to school, learns mm-hmm. their own mother tongue because it's easier for them to understand it. And then they learn that, learn that aspect. It's much easier to learn a foreign, you know, read and write a foreign language. So, so now there's been a lot of church growth, which Glenn will probably tell you about, but in Sunday schools, where there are Nyatafolo t- Sunday school teachers, they're teaching those kids to read Nyatafolo. Yeah. And, um, the, the, Moise, the man I work with in translation still long distance, he said that right now, a lot more people who are not Christians are coming into the office asking for Nyatafolo calendar, for the diction, for anything, as we don't have a whole dictionary out yet, but anything that will help them, uh, in their families with Nyatafolo. And also, we now have the New Testament was done by Faith Comes by Hearing. It's in audio form. And Wycliffe put that together with Testament. the digital New Testament in a phone app so that people can actually hear what is being right in front of them. It goes verse by verse. It highlights the verse in yellow with what's being said. 
it helps them learn to read as well as mm-hmm. to hear it. And the fact that their language is now so respected that it's even on phones, this is what's people are coming in to get it. Got to have it on your phone, right? Yeah. And the <laughs> Jesus film, Inyata Folo. You got to have that too. And so these people who were really marginalized and looked down on by everybody because they're just poor farmers, who cares? In fact, even Christian pastors from other languages said, don't bother your time with them. When we went out, they said, don't worry about them. They're, they're just resistant. Learn the trade language and, you know, talk to other people. Well, that's how everybody felt about them. They were worthless and now they're not. (laughs) It's really amazing to see what a change that makes. Mm That's so exciting. So Glenn, I'm going to turn things to you so you can talk about some of the things that you did on the field, or if Lynn mentioned that there are some other stories that you guys want to be sure to tell. So really the time is yours. So just take a little bit of time to talk to us about uh, some of your experiences in Cote d'Ivoire. Well, my training course is a medical technologist, so it's laboratory medicine and went primarily uh, to develop the lab at this mission hospital and train the national staff. Uh, a lot of that was done in the first term uh, where we had a new building, got a new equipment. I worked with the staff that were there. It was there and had some new other people come in and work with them. Then our second term, the hospital asked us me to get them in the computer age. But at the same time, it, it you know, the missionary who at that time who was doing salaries for the hospital Took her, she took a whole week to do all the salaries manual. Once the program was working, it took her three hours. So, you know, there was obviously some benefit to all that. Uh, fortunately, eventually there was a, another young man who, uh, was working the pharmacy who had a great aptitude and really wanted to learn it. So I taught, worked with him and he was a self learner. So he basically now is the head of IT. So all those, those, all the areas where I was involved technically at the hospital. Uh, have been turned over to national staff, and it was turned over pretty much by the by the mid late 1990s. Uh, so my work was primarily at the hospital, more consulting, helping with troubleshooting, uh, training staff here and there. And I began to focus uh, more and more on during the weekends, anyway, on church planning among Yarafolo, and that started in the mid 80s. When people, when they had, like, you know, Lynn mentioned these group of young men who wanted to know about Christ and, um, about Jesus and our teaching. And, uh, we, as I look back on our whole career, uh, we, we were blessed and by the grace of God to actually see a church planted among Yarrow some pastors trained not by us, but by Bible schools, um, to see the translation completed, to see, uh, people taking over our roles in different areas. And it was just a blessing to see that, knowing that there are some missionaries who work, that can work 40 years. And if they see a handful of believers, depending upon where they are, that is the fruit that they have. And that is nothing, that's not be, not saying because we are blessed or that we are mm-hmm. better than anyone else. It's just our environment. And I think it leads leads to probably one of the highlights of our career uh, was that towards the very end when my brother-in-law came out to do a DVD, you know, a few years before we retired, a couple of years before we retired, a video of, of telling the story so that when we on our deputation, final deputation, we have this to say, have this. And so we were interviewing, uh, Lassina and Scotchy, who were two of the, new, the first believers in Che Pogo Vogo. And this was, you know, this was, we did this in, 
2014, 15, well, 15, I think, something like that. And the story was, they told a story that was back in the mid-1970s. And uh, Lynn, you know, as we as, as uh, they were sharing the story, Lynn was there translating, kind of writing things down. Well, and she was kind of blown away. I wasn't away. actually well, writing Well, not translating, but you were it's listening to it. My brother-in-law was speaking, he needed to, someone to translate from English to Nyatafolo. And so that's what I was doing. And he said, okay, now ask them a question. And I told them, what we want to know is, why did you want to come to Jesus? And then how have you seen him work through the years? And they told us a story they had never told us before. Lasina, who was one of those first three, he had gone into his bedroom probably when he was 17 or 18. It was several years before we arrived. He went into his little hut that a man man has a hut by himself. He went in there and he was lying down on his mat and he saw a man at the foot of his bed in shining white clothes. And he said, wait a minute, who are you? The man said to him, I am Jesus. And if you follow me, many people in this region are going to follow me too. And Lassina said, but me, why me? I've never been to school. I don't know who you are. What can I do? And Jesus said, you will see. And he left. Lassina was so disturbed. He went and found his friend, Sakachi. And he said, Sakachi, we have got to find Jesus. This, I had this vision last night. I can't believe it. We have got to find Jesus. And they, and they, of course, visions and dreams are very important. And they recognize that certain dreams are God dreams, good yeah. dreams, supernatural dreams. Right. Yeah. So they went to a Catholic church, but the, the Catholicism around us is extremely syncretized. And all they heard was Mari, Mari, Mari. It was all about Mary. They didn't even hear the name of Jesus. They went to some Christian funerals. They were all done in other languages. One of them had a relative at our Baptist hospital that my, where my dad and uncle and were doctors. My parents were, my aunt and my mom were nurses. They went there. All they heard was in other languages. And then they said, one day, we saw you and Glenn walk into our village. And this, we, is, this is probably a few years later. Yeah, it had to be years later. We saw you walk into our village and we heard you came from the Baptist hospital and we looked at each other and went, we are chosen. <laughs> but yeah. they had to wait to see if we were approachable, if we were the kind of people that they could actually reach out to. They waited about three years. Yeah. And then they asked us to come teach them. <laughs> and and the reason why I we went to that village uh, from our from us because our language helper came was from there, and uh, we had asked uh, when we came we wanted to find a language helper that was about our age. We approached Nyarofolo, uh, who was at the hospital, and asked him if he knew of anybody who could be our language helper. Gave him the conditions that person needed to be, you know, basically. They're into Nyarafolo. They aren't, you know, they're using Nyarafolo every day as their primary language. And he said, well, my, I have a cousin, you know, who, who would be great. So this was Laji and he introduced Laji. And then we took him on as a language helper. And then he was from this little village of Tepogovogo, which if you did any type of survey, you know, you know, sociological survey and, you know, where, what are the important villages where are the key places to start? This wouldn't have been one. You would never have put it on your map. Would never put it on your map. Just Only little, 70 people well, in it out in the middle of their fields. Yeah. And, just, <laughs> and, uh, the, you know, their, their lineage and so forth was important. I mean, they came, I won't get into all that. Yeah. But I mean, it was just as far as being a strategic village, it wasn't. 
but it's obviously where God wanted us to go. And that started the little church that began to reach out to all others. Now, if everybody in that whole area, all those surrounding villages where all the believers were together at one, one time, there'd be about maybe a hundred. And so there's a church out there, a building out there and a pastor now who grew up in, the, who was a son of the village, another son of the village that pastors another church, you know, about six, seven miles away. Uh, so we're just really blessed by that and realize that God's hand was in all of this stuff. Even when Lynn and I were dating and getting together, God was talking to Lodge, I mean, to Scotchy, I mean, to Lasina. So, you know, see God's hands in all that. And then we, yeah. And they're not only pastoring those two churches, but those two churches are reaching out still to all of the villages around them. Yeah. And then there are two other Nyatafolo pastors, one who's working at a sugarcane plantation where there are lots of immigrants. But the other one in our town of Ferke, where up till now, the churches have all said, no, we don't want to divide off people. We don't want to have a Nyatafolo service. But now in town, two churches are having Nyatafolo services because yeah. these pastors are there now. Yeah. So, and so you know, so as cool. I look, look back on, on, on God's hands and all this thing, these things, and Another story that that stands out to me was early on. This was back back in the, I think the early nineties, and uh, Lassina, the guy who came at the time, he had two wives, and both of them became believers, and they they were baptized, and and so the one the one woman was sharing her 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 um, testimony, and she said, "Well, you know, when you first started coming out, I would come and." And, um, sit and listen. But then all of a sudden there was a men, man with a red aspect. In other words, a spiritual apparition that came by, came by to, came by me and it frightened me and I would leave. And, uh, so she would go to the shaman and whoever to try to find ways to get rid of this apparition that appeared to her from time to time and nothing worked. And one time she was out in, out in the field by herself and it appeared to her and she was very frightened. And she said, well, I've tried everything. Jesus, get rid of this. And it was gone. So she then came and became a believer. And then shortly, then it was a little bit after that. I mean, it was, um, well, after, after she became a believer, some other, the wives of the believer, of the men became believers. And so we decided to have a Bible conference at the village, inviting some other uh, mature and narrow full of Christians from a different village to come and help with that. And at the end of that time, the all the women voluntarily on their own, own accord brought out their uh, pots that they would uh, use as sacrifice to their god, John Kodogol, who was the god, who was goddess, who was over uh, ch children and women, women and children to take care of their care and so forth. And so they uh, broke them and burned them. And that was their that was their decision, their own vol volition. Then we heard, this was a few months later, a little mm -hmm. while later, that we heard that, that, uh, the woman's name, that her two-year-old had died. And, and that's what everyone said would happen when they burned their pots. Yeah, you yeah. will lose your, your children now. And when I heard that, I just turned to God and was angry with him. I said, God, you don't understand that you are full of people. How can you allow this to happen? You know, that, that she, here is, here's this woman who turns to you, gives up her John Cordigal pot, and now you allow her child to die. And you, you and you know everyone's going to say it's because you gave that up. Now, sure enough, that's what they're saying. So we were concerned about her and we went out and uh, to give our condolences and to visit and asked her how she was doing. And she said, well, death happens. I'm following Jesus. 
And she did to the point where she died later yeah, well, she, of, uh, breast uh, of breast cancer. At that, po- at that point, her faith was greater than mine. Mm. And, and recognizing the, the, amount, the, the amount of training or teaching she had at that time was not that much. But obviously, she had, she had uh, realized in her own life a freedom. You know, they often say that the chains of the, uh, of the enslavement to that spirit world, you know, are, are broken and mm-hmm. came off. And so she had recognized up to, her, up to that point in her life a difference and uh, a freedom that she had in Christ that even the tragedy of losing her child uh, wouldn't deter her from continuing to follow Jesus. And there are many stories through that of where we, we hear people being freed from this, of being protected from it. Uh, recently, less several years ago, uh, somebody came and buried raw meat in, in this one believer's field, which was to have been, you know, one of the ultimate curses of the field to, to just, you know, to turn the field rotten. And then a dog came up and dig up, dug up all the meat and ate it. <laughs> You know, and he and, had the best. Harvest. And he had the best harvest <laughs> next year. So you know, we see, we see continuously how God, in that sit- setting, has shown His power mm-hmm. and ability to to inter- intervene and uh, work with His people and protect them, and also even through death, the re- realization that that God is still there. So it was just a you know, as we look back on the day in day out, the the evidence of God moving among the people and just the grace that God's gave us to be able to see that. And it's not because, again, it's not because we are super missionaries and did everything right and all that kind of stuff. I'm sure we made a lot of errors, but um, just by grace of God, you know, and, and God using us in that situation to bring uh, his word to the yard full of people. Yeah, yeah. That's wonderful. I'm so encouraged by that and by those, some of those stories. And, and I, I'm just struck in your story how you both chose to be faithful to the call that God placed on your lives. And and for you, that call was a, the dramatic one, right? To leave, to leave the U.S. and go to another country. But we know that God has placed a call on all of us. And, and we do have a calling from Him as believers. And I just love to wrap up our time together with your thoughts on what someone listening today can do to make the command, because Jesus gave us all the same command, right? To go and make disciples of all the world. And and you pursued that in your specific way in Cote d'Ivoire with really amazing God-inspired, God-created results. But what can what can someone listening, what are your thoughts on what someone listening today can do to make the Great Commission a reality in their own lives. I think going back to what we learned from Paul Little, and if you had get an opportunity to, you can find the the talk at Urbana 1970, Paul Little affirming the will of God it's for your life. It's yeah. online. You can find it. A very powerful message um, of realizing that God leads us day to day. He he unrolls His will and His his desire for us kind of like, a, like Paul, Paul Little said, like a scroll, which is good because if we had, if we had known all the different things that God was going to put in our paths, we probably would say no. Mm-hmm. 
I mean, we can look back and say, yeah, I'll look at all these good things and we had all the highlights, but there are a lot of hard things that we haven't mentioned and a lot of pain, a lot of suffering for ourselves, a lot of different issues that, that, that we had, we had to confront. Um, and which is true in everyone's life, mm-hmm. but the, the, the trusting, trusting God that he has my best interest in mind. And if I walk in the path he has for me, it's the best thing for me. And it will also be, he will use me to impact other people's lives, wherever that is. And it may just be in my own neighborhood, visiting my, you know, taking the courage to, to talk to my neighbor, uh, whatever that would be, but to, to do that. And that there, God doesn't, I'm not going to be more blessed and have more uh, rewards in heaven because I was a missionary. And I'm, there, I remember there's a woman in our church, uh, Estelle Bishop, uh, Highland Park, who was a faithful worker who was always there behind the scenes doing cleaning or whatever it was. A widow. A widow who just was, you know, an amazing woman that she never, no one ever saw her hardly. But we recognize, you know, that, that God called her to do these things. She was faithful in that. So I think, you know, it's, it's whatever, it's, it's having the courage to, to obey God and follow his, his direction wherever that may lead. Knowing that I don't have to know the end of the story, just having faith to know what's the end of this day and end of this week and this, this mm-hmm. month, whatever. But it, it is obedience and persisting in it. Very few churches are established by short termers. It's through it, whether it's a pastor or a missionary or whatever, it takes a long term commitment to being in a place. And God may, and, and my, my neighbor isn't going to be won by five minutes every other year, <laughs> you know, talking to them. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm, I guess what I'm saying is persistence and faithfulness in whatever God's calling us to and not giving up just because there's a seeming roadblock or a hardship, mm-hmm. hard thing that comes in front of me. One thing that the Lord was teaching me through some of those hard, hard years where we wondered, are we ever going to be able to even finish what we started and, you know, all of those things, was to learn to listen to him. And I found that that was really hard for me because I'm a person of words, the journalism, the linguistics, the languages that I was working in. My mind was constantly full of words, and I had to learn to find a quiet place and calm down and not just blab to him, but to let him speak to me. It was life-changing. And there were quite a few of books that I read that came along that were my mentors, people that were in California or England or whatever, you know, but the books that they had left taught me how to do that. And like in Romans 8, it says, if you walk with the Spirit, he will, he will guide you. You will be guided by the Spirit. And we are to fix our mind on what the Spirit desires. So as we listen to him and keep our mind on the things that he is telling us, the Spirit of Christ, they call him there. (laughs) The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, (laughs) gentleness, all of those things. And as we listen to him, he's going to show us the path that he has for us. And it starts out with hour by hour and day by day. And then he opens up the next thing. 
You know, like we came here as re- on retirement, expecting our retirement to be a certain way, and it has totally changed from what our minds envisioned. But God had a plan, and he's still carrying it out. And we both still have ties to projects over there, but we're also building relationships here in ways that we wouldn't have expected. For instance, the president of our neighborhood association, Woodward Village, it's called, She's just entering retirement, still has not a lot of money and is trying to work towards getting into specific housing that would fit her purposes. But she and I became friends because I was, I'm a walker and I would walk by her while she was in her garden. And she started walking with me, introduced me to others, found out she is a believer. She's a preacher's kid, in fact. Well, long story short, I helped her move out of the house she's been taking care of her father in. The guy who moved in didn't want her to live there anymore. So she suddenly had nowhere to go. Moved into another house. I just told her, Chris, don't ever be homeless. When she had to move out of there unexpectedly, she's ended up living with us. And now, because she knows everybody here, because she grew up here, (laughs) now her ties are opening up new things for us. The Lord is amazing at what he can do. In unexpected ways, when all we do is is take the next walk, do the next thing, you know. <laughs> when I said, don't ever be homeless, I didn't know it was going to end up that she'd be here with us for, you know, however many months. But it's it's perfect in yeah. his timing. Yeah. yeah. Just an example. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time, for sharing your story with us today. And uh, I know that the people listening will be greatly encouraged and blessed by what you have had a chance to share with us today about your experience serving God. May it be so. Thank you for listening to this episode of On the Move by 21C International. 21C International is a Christian nonprofit organization on a mission to encourage, equip, and empower Christian pastors in the global South by providing free, informal, biblical, and pastoral training. You can visit 21C International to learn more and be sure to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform to hear more about missions, international ministry, and how God is changing lives around the world.